Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hello, I'm Charles Robinson. Welcome to Future City, the monthly show here on 88.1 WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. Today on the show, we're looking at education during a global pandemic. As young people head back to school, how are students, teachers, parents, and administrators dealing with another school year during COVID? Later in the show, I'll speak to Dr. Christopher Morphew, the Dean of the School of Education at Johns Hopkins University, and Shamor Gardner, the Executive Director of Strong Schools Maryland, about how students are doing during the pandemic and the lasting implications on education in the state of Maryland. But first, I'm joined by Sarah Y. Kim. Sarah is the health and housing reporter here on 88.1 WYPR. She's also WYPR's Report for America Corps member and the Anthony Brandon Fellow. Thank you for joining us here on Future City, Sarah. Let's start with the breaking news, if you will. The state has decided that it now wants to require school districts all over our state to become masked. Give us an idea of how that's going to work. Yeah, so basically up to this point, it was left up to local county school boards whether or not they were going to have some kind of masking requirement. Um, Most of the counties did have a mandate. Only five counties did not have something. So the State Board of Education's vote um, was to implement a school mask mandate for the entire state. So all public county schools um, will have to have some kind of indoor masking for uh, 180 days, uh, up to 180 days. And the school board said, you know, they would, the education board said they would have some kind of review system month by month um, to decide whether this was still necessary, um, you know, in case transmission rates go down. Uh, But as of this point, it seems like we are in the middle of a surge. And so they thought it was the safest way to keep students back in school and to stop, you know, having to go through virtual learning again. Um, and make sure that we minimize the spread of COVID-19. Well, let's drill down on the numbers. Where are we in the state at this point? Because the Delta variant, I believe all across the country, and including in Maryland, has started to surge. Yes. So, yes, it's very much also the case in Maryland. Um, Interestingly, about a couple weeks ago, um, it seemed like we were doing a little bit better than a lot of the country According to the CDC, our transmission rates were considered moderate. Um, The two categories above that were substantial to high, which was what most of the country was under at the time. And now if you look at the CDC data tracker, all of the counties in Maryland are considered substantial to high transmission. So specifically when it comes to the positivity rates, um, we've been teetering around 5% for the past several weeks. And The reason why I use 5% as a benchmark is because the last time we were at those numbers was around April when we still had an indoor masking mandate. And so basically, since then, we've seen a dip in cases in Maryland. 
Um, there were several months, specifically from like May to July, where it seemed like the pandemic, the worst of it was over. And now we're seeing those numbers go back up. Um, but there isn't any statewide masking mandate in terms of, you know, just for people all around. Um, and it seems like we're in the middle of a surge. Um, we're not as badly off as we were in some other stages of the pandemic, but we we certainly aren't doing as well as we were a couple months ago. Sarah, I want to go back to those jurisdictions who did not have these mass mandates. They have some of the highest rates, I understand, of COVID uh, incidents. Is that correct? So I can't speak for every county. But generally, when there is a masking mandate, the numbers have been able to go down. Um, but I can't speak for every county. And of course, there are vaccination rates to factor in as well um, that contribute to whether or not transmission is high. I note that several school districts across this state have had different forms of learning. Everybody wants to go back to in-person, but there are some jurisdictions that are allowing for uh, remote learning. Can you talk about specifically in the Baltimore region how that's playing out and the why? So the reason why we still have some kind of virtual option is because, you know, obviously not all students are feeling safe. Not all students have been vaccinated. Um, obviously the vaccine is only available to students 12 and up. And that's why they want to have that kind of virtual option for students. Um, but for the most part, the goal of the State Board of Education and school systems here in Baltimore as well is to bring students back to the classroom. That has been their priority, and that is what they're trying to do. And that is why they also voted for that masking mandate. This is literally the third year that schools have had to deal with COVID. Talk about the evolution of how we've gone from where we were in the beginning to where we are now. Right. So in the very beginning, um, March of 2020, um, schools closed down. Uh, we had basically all virtual learning. Um, and then as schools started reopening in August of last year, um, there was a lot of chaos and tension around that. Um, schools were planning basically to go fully in person um, for at least some portion of the fall. Um, some counties like Baltimore County were slower to want to reopen. They wanted to remain virtual until January at this time. Um, and one major point of tension was between the schools and the Hogan administration. Um, I believe it was actually like last August when uh, Governor Hogan said, you know, we need to go back in person or some semblance of it in the fall. And school boards that aren't doing that aren't doing their you know due diligence to the students. Um, so that was a point of tension last year, and it was um, very much kind of a hectic transition back into the classroom. Um, what we did see, though, was some form of hybrid learning uh, in the fall and the spring, but a lot of it was virtual, and this is the first year where they're really trying to bring it back fully in person. I want to end on this, Sarah. I know it's difficult to ascertain, and I know that Part of this emergency order is they will reassess things. What can we expect? Before the vote fully goes into effect, becomes official by the state board, um, this, 
stake a ELR committee needs to approve it. Um, and that is, it's expected that they would, but it might take about 10 days to go into effect that vote. Um, so there may be a several days period. And in fact, some schools are already open, right? So there may be a several days period where students are in schools and they don't necessarily have a masking mandate in place. Um, so that is kind of what the next few days are going forward. What's next? Um, in terms of what we can expect um, in the longer future, it's not very certain. I think the state board is trying to assess the numbers I'm trying to see where they want to go with that. If the transmission rates are lower, I believe they're trying to assess whether or not they want to continue having some kind of mandate in place. Uh, 180 days, up to 180 days is what they, um, what the benchmark is for now. I've been speaking to Sarah Y. Kim. Sarah is the health and housing reporter here on 88.1 WYPR. She's also WYPR's Report for America Corps member, and the Anthony Brandon Fellow. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. We have to take a brief break, but don't you go away. When we come back, I'll speak with Dr. Christopher Morphew, the Dean of the School of Education at Johns Hopkins University, about how a year and a half of the COVID crisis has affected students and strategies teachers are using to combat learning loss. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City, the monthly show here on 88.1 WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. Today on the show, we're looking at education during a global pandemic. As young people head back to school, how are students, teachers, parents, and administrators dealing with another school year during COVID? Joining us now is Dr. Christopher Morphew, the Dean of the School of Education at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Morphew, let's begin with this. The pandemic has affected all of our lives here in the U.S. Can you give us a sense the impact of COVID has had on education across the country? Yeah, and thanks for having me here. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you about um, about this topic. Uh, you know, I would, uh, Charles, I think the the impact of COVID has in some ways yet to be seen. We're just, we continue to learn, we're beginning to gather data on uh, the impact on schools and on students and on learning. But if I were, um, if I were to say right now what we know, I think it's, I think it's in two areas. One, the impact on learning appears to have been tremendous. Um, best case is what we're seeing is very little gains for um, or no gains in learning, particularly in some core subjects like math and science for most students. Um, the worst case is what we're seeing is the equivalent of multiple summers of regular melt, summer melt, um, particularly for at-risk students. Uh, and on the mental health side, uh, the damage may even be more serious. Nearly all students have experienced some challenges to their mental health and well-being during the pandemic. And many um, 
many have lost access to school-based services and supports. I don't know how many of your listeners understand just what a central role schools play in terms of mental health and in reporting issues of abuse for many students. They, uh, school staff are in some cases the primary reporters. Uh, and students at greatest risk for abuse have seen increased risk for violence in their homes and communities during COVID. I want to talk about the different approaches to this new school year across this country. Obviously, we're in Maryland. Um, some schools are coming back with in-person learning. Others are using hybrids. Talk to us about the different types of uh, approaches to, to learning in this new school year. Well, I think schools are approaching this year very differently. Um, first of all, they've had a chance to learn from the past. They've had a chance to um, see what see what's possible with technology and see what um, where technology has not been as successful as they want it to be. They've had a chance to train teachers and teachers have had a chance to um, learn how to do remote learning and hybrid learning. Many of and many teachers have not been trained in, in doing that at all. So I think teachers and schools are approaching this with a lot more knowledge. What I see, um, some of the approaches that I when, I, when I when I hear from principals and schools, what I see some of the approaches are is, is really trying to figure out, um, meet students where they're at, um, do initial diagnostics of learning, particularly in core areas, as I was saying. Um, and that, that's really important in states like Maryland that hit pause on state-based um, tests, right? So, so Maryland and other states um, last year in response to COVID didn't do annual testing. So there's really um, questions in, in, in teachers and principals' minds about where are students at. So the first thing schools are doing is trying to do an assessment and figuring out where students are at. Um, I think the other approach that I see schools taking, and this is certainly true in Baltimore City here, is um, an attempt to do something different than what schools might historically traditionally have done, which is uh, instead of focusing on remediation, trying to get students to accelerate, right? And um, one of our professors at the School of Education, David Steiner, has been pushing a, a accelerate rather than remediate um, function for, for districts. And I think it's really going to be important for districts to figure out how to hit that acceleration button in their approaches with students this year. And that's going to require, first and foremost, figuring out where students are at and then figuring out how do you take them past the melt, past the grade level um, distinctions that, that, that um, might have been made in the past and, and, and bring them up to speed as quickly as possible, particularly again in those, in those core subject areas. I note that a number of school districts all across this country are confronted by this idea because everybody wants in-person learning because as you've already indicated, there were some kids who did extremely well with distance learning, but there were a number of kids who didn't do well. How do you distinguish between, or how do you, how do you make the kind of, if you will, a connection of students who didn't do well and those who may want to continue down this whole path of, I did really good on not having to see people. Yeah, and um, there's not a lot of data out there on, on the, the distribution of students you're talking about, but um, certainly anecdotally from, um, I have school-age children, um, from the um, parents that I speak with and, and hear with and from the schools that I interact with, there is some 
some evidence that there are some them, there are some students, some children who did better in in these settings. Um, I think typically those students might be those might be students who um, uh, deal with issues of you know significant social anxiety, um, where um, being at home, being in a more comfortable environment may put them at ease, and um, students who are um, who have access to broadband and high speed act and high speed um, um, uh, wireless service certainly that's that's part of it. Um, but I, my my impression is is that's a smaller number, a much smaller number than the students who struggled last year. And I think districts are spending by and large most of their time just um, on the sort of proportionate needs of the students who struggled. And what what is interesting to me and, and what we're what we're seeing, I think, is the students who struggled with um, remote learning um, aren't just at risk students. I'm struck by the number, um, the data we're seeing now, and the number of students who are, um, you know, who are who are scoring above grade level, uh, who are certainly not would not be considered at risk, um, not you know, um, uh, uh, students who've who've excelled in school in the past and who found remote learning to be incredibly challenging. Not again, just because maybe the teachers and maybe the school weren't as prepared as they should have been to jump to a remote setting immediately, but because of the need for social interaction that these students have and these, these children have. Um, my, my own school age children certainly um, suffered from this last year. And I think that's what we're seeing is that, again, that mental health aspect of it is, is really significant. You have heard this like I have. A lot of educators across this country are talking about last year should be considered a gap year. Give me your ideas on this whole idea that somehow we got to just put a, an asterisk about last year. And how do we, you know, you talked about uh, catching up, but also accelerating uh, and explain that a little bit. Yeah, it's a really interesting idea. Um, you know, the, the, the economists that are talking about this are talking about what, um, what the the gap in learning or what the um, lack of of learning gains that students would have normally experienced, how much that's going to affect future earnings, right? So there's some reports already suggesting that um, for a student in um, eighth grade um, who who effectively lost out on most of a year of learning, what's the economic impact for that for that student, right? As they go into the as they go into the work environment, and you can multiply that by you know the hundreds of thousands of of, of, of children who experience that in eighth grade. Um, so there's that piece of it. Um, in terms of the whole idea that it 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 can't it shouldn't count or it can't count. The problem, of course, is it does count, and we can't just turn the clock back on this. And and if you were in eighth grade last year, you were in eighth grade last year. And so, um, and that to me is the segue to the need to accelerate. We can't, um, we can't turn back the clock. We can't just say, we're gonna cover eighth grade again in ninth grade um, for these students who didn't get um, algebra, uh, who didn't learn algebra, which we know is the you know, gateway to more advanced courses in high school. We can't just turn back the clock. So um, the need then to, um, to not focus on okay, we're going to do eighth grade again, because then, of course, you're another year behind on Algebra 2 and Geometry and that, you know, further on down the line. 
um, the need for a focus on acceleration rather rather than remediation is, I think, a a response to this kind of last year didn't happen. It 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 it's a more realistic approach, I think, to saying um, students are going to need to be prepared for college. They're going to need to be prepared for the workforce, and unless we approach unless we approach this as getting them ready. Um, and moving them forward towards that target, rather than saying we're going to deal now with the lot with learning that we should have had last year, uh, I think we're doing a disservice to students if we focus on just that remediation piece. And I think um, while I would have, I would love to have a do-over and a mulligan for last year, and I'm sure many schools and certainly many students were. Um, it, it's not possible. So we've got to figure out how to push those students forward as fast as we can. And again, I think diagnosis and assessment and uh, is going to be key to that. I want to talk to you about the um, the individuals who are in the School of Education who want to go out and be the great teachers that you're training them to be. What did they learn last year, and how did they have to refocus how you train teachers, and and how do you how they deal with how students were learning? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question because schools of education have a part to play here, right? Um, in training um, training teachers to uh, to work within an environment that um, no one could have predicted two years ago, right? Um, so I think I would I would point to a couple of things. Um, we were lucky enough um, about two years ago to launch our um, Center for Safe and Healthy Schools in the School of Education at, at Johns Hopkins. And as part of that, as part of the launch of the Center for Safe and Healthy Schools, and by the way, when we launched the Center for Safe and Healthy Schools, SAFE had an entirely different meeting uh, than it does today. And Healthy had a different meeting than it, than it does today. Um, we were trying to bring a, um, a more global focus on student well-being to um, the discussions around safe schools, which have been dominated by violence and, and gun violence, right? But as part of that, we took a look at what we were doing. We, 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 we thought we, it was important that we walk the walk as well as talk the talk about safe and healthy schools. And um, our faculty got together and made sure that all of our initial preparation programs, whether they be in special education or administration and supervision, um, all of them included a component that focused on um, student well-being, right? So um, we were lucky in the sense that we had just launched that center, but um, um, students going through our programs get access to coursework around student well-being with a focus specifically on mental health. Um, but that is something that I think schools of education need to take a much um, closer look at and, and ensure that all uh, uh, preparation programs are taking a look at social emotional well-being, mental health. That is something that I think in traditionally in teacher edu education programs has gotten a short shrift as opposed to being a focus of what teachers should be doing. And it's difficult because with um, certification standards, licensure standards in terms of uh, preparation programs, there's not a lot of room to shove in more curriculum and more material. But I think if there's anything that this pandemic has, has taught us, it's that the, um, the role of schools as communities where children can interact with each other socially and develop social skills and, um, uh, have their mental health and, and developmental needs approached. School's as important for that as it is for learning. So part of what we're trying to do in teacher prep, and I think what all schools of that are trying to do now is take a step back and re-examine again, how are we preparing um, our, our 
our teacher educators, our, our, our school leaders to lead schools where student well-being is not a secondary, um, uh, uh, is not of secondary importance, but is of primary importance. Dr. Morphew, I want to talk to you, and you and I had a conversation earlier about this. Education has changed in this environment. Have we let the genie out of the bottle and we can't put it back? And, and what does education look like going forward? I think, um, yeah, you and I did talk about this, Charles, and I, I'm, I, I, at, at that time I said I'd love, to, I'd love to give you an optimistic, rosy, rosy perspective on this and tell you that um, coming out of this pandemic, you know, K-12, public K-12 education in this country is going to be radically different and policymakers and um, uh, 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 um, state agencies and schools are all, be are all behind this sort of, you know, marching in lockstep. I think that would be too optimistic a point of view. I do think some things have changed, but I worry not enough has changed. The things that have changed, I think, are... Um, a realization that um, technology is not going to be the um, the savior for uh, uh, for students learning, and it can't. And that if we're going to incorporate technology and you know a one device per child approach to education, that we have to think really clearly about what that means, and it can't be it can't be seen as something that's just an add on. Right, it has to actually be complementary. It actually has to be additive rather than an add-on. And if that's going to happen, then we need to train teachers differently. We need to equip them um, to use these tools differently. We quit, and we need to ensure that if we're going to have devices that we give out to students that um, require wireless access and broadband access, that that's something that actually needs to be provided to students, particularly those students who are who are most at risk. Um, I think we. I think the. Um, I think it has changed, Charles, and it's, it's going to be really interesting to see. And now I'm in a uh, I'm now I'm in a so a real gray area here, but this the ways in which this um, uh, we we see in um, many states the 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 politics of vaccinations and the politics of COVID, I think has exposed some um, has exposed for many people. Um, the highly politicized environment in which schools and which in which in which schools school leaders and teachers operate, and those of us in education have seen this for a long time, but I think what it's exposed for many people that maybe they hadn't seen before was um, the impact of this um, you know this 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 game of politics that goes on around our schools and around our our students that really affects their learning that affects um, the teacher, the, the profession of teaching. And we're seeing, you know, one of the th long lasting effects of this actually maybe Charles is who goes into teaching and who doesn't go into teaching. Uh, it has been clear for a long time that um, the more politicized the classroom is and schools are, the less likely um, prospective teachers want to become teachers and want to pursue this as a profession. So I don't think um, what we're seeing in the politics of mask mandates and vaccine mandates and all these other kinds of things is going to be good long term for the profession and probably is going to have some negative impacts 
on um, who chooses to be a teacher. And that that really worries me. That's Dr. Christopher Morphew. He is the dean of the School of Education at Johns Hopkins University. Thank you, Dr. Morphew. Thank you. I appreciate the, uh, the opportunity, Charles. It's been great to talk with you. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. We have to take a brief break, but don't go away. When we come back, I'll talk to Shamoya Gardner, the executive director of Strong Schools Maryland, about how students have been doing during the pandemic and the lasting implications on education in the state of Maryland. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City, the monthly show here on 88.1 WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. Today on the show, we're looking at education during a global pandemic. Joining us now is education advocate and activist, Shamoya Gardner. She's the executive director of Strong Schools Maryland an organization which focuses on improving public education in the state. First of all, Shamoya, we're in a very unique situation. There are some kids who are going to do in-person learning, and then there are others who are thinking other ideas. Why don't you give us an update on where we are at this point? Yes. So um, across the state right now, school systems and in fact, the State Board of Education are attempting to determine what school is going to look like. We know that students are going back in the midst of a pandemic with some interrupted learning. And some school districts have allowed for there to be a virtual option. Um, I believe that Montgomery County is one of those that has allowed a certain number of students to decide to come back to school um, that way. We know that Over the course of the pandemic, this last year and a half, we saw a lot of things and learned a lot of things about our students. We learned that some did function extremely well in a virtual environment, and this was due to uh, a variety of things. One, not experiencing bullying from classmates, two, potentially not experiencing racialized trauma if they happen to be one of the few students of color, um, not necessarily being kicked out of class due to harsh, punitive school discipline measures, And and that has its benefits to be sure. We also know that in the same time, many students did not have a a great virtual learning experience, particularly students who have IEPs and 504 plans and required accommodations that school systems were were not physically able to provide. Um, Because of this, it is understandably uh, difficult for, for school systems to move forward this year, determining what is going to be best. We know that we can't predict um, you know, if one school system decides to offer a virtual learning option and another offers not to, um, if there is an outbreak, accommodations will have to be made to ensure that students are allowed to continue learning, regardless of, of what whether it is virtually or in person. Um, the organization Strong Schools Maryland is not currently taking a stance as to whether schools should go back virtually or in person, but I will say that 
we expect public institutions of education to offer education to all students, regardless of circumstances as, as is within their capability. Um, and one thing we do know is that virtual schooling is an option, even if it is not always the best option. I've noted that a number of school districts did not give the standardized tests at the end of the school year. And many people, at least I know I've heard from some teachers that said they want to consider last year a gap year, i.e. they didn't get as much as they should have, so they need to do catch-up. Is that something that you're going to see in the 21-22 school year? So I, I'm really interested in this gap year option. I think the folks who are making that case have some valid points. Um, this is unprecedented. We know that things didn't go as they were planned. But the fact is that the year did happen, um, and there's a lot to be learned by looking at data. Um, I think that not moving ahead with end of year assessments at the state level was a good idea. Frankly, we know that educators and, and students are exhausted. We also know that um, in this coming fall, there will be a shorter uh, statewide assessment to sort of establish new benchmarks and figure out where we are. And that data is important. Um, the trouble we run into is when information like that then has consequences about how school system is treated or perceived in the community or whether funding is then allowed to continue flowing to that school system. What we need to know now is where students are, um, where staff members are. And I think that rather than considering a gap year, we should be looking to this past year for all the lessons that we can learn to help us move forward so that we don't um, repeat any mistakes and that we can grow in our approach to continuing to provide a great education during these times. The state implemented a new program called the Blueprint for Maryland's Future. But in lieu of everything that has happened, they put parts of this on hold. Can you talk about what was put on hold and what, what are we going to do going forward? Yes, yes. So the, the Blueprint for Maryland's Future is um, honestly the reason Strong Schools Maryland exists. So a couple of years ago, state legislators and education leaders recognized we weren't funding our schools at the level we needed to. And we had a lot of outdated policies and, and programs in place that, um, frankly, weren't creating the, the graduates that we need to see, the, the workforce that we know the state needed or the opportunities um, that we as Marylanders as a whole deserve moving forward. So um, we did see that some delays had to happen in certain parts of the Blueprint for Maryland's Future. An example of this is reporting. So for example, there is a report due um, on how we can accurately assess the level of poverty that exists in neighborhoods because we're having trouble counting that in um, highly populous areas, especially places that are serving students from immigrant and mixed status families. So um, instead of getting that report, that would enable us to make some decisions to ensure that resources go where they're needed. We're instead getting an interim report and that final report is being delayed until next year. There are many examples of this and this was predominantly done by the legislature to ensure that school systems with um, all of the things they have to deal with and all the funding they have to coordinate, have a little bit of time, a, a bit of a grace period to get themselves in order, reacclimate, and then drive towards these goals. Some of the things that um, we can expect to see 
be pushed back are grants that are available to establish school-based health centers in uh, school communities serving high rates of students in poverty. School-based health centers are an amazing timely solution to some of the, uh, the crises we're seeing as a result of the pandemic, ensuring that students are up to date on vaccinations and can receive primary care before things spiral out of control and become an issue that keep them out of school. We're also seeing um, some things be sped up as a result of the, the pandemic, the governor's veto and the blueprint 2.0 that we passed earlier this session. We're seeing more duty centers come online um, a little bit faster. So nine duty centers, these early learning centers to bridge the gap between um, infancy and early childhood and actually joining the K-12 system, they'll be funded at $330,000 per year for um, every, every single duty center operating in the state. And that goes a long way to addressing some of the gaps that we see in terms of childcare and learning opportunities caused by the pandemic. Um, it is primarily reporting. We do see that there are additional funds to address any interrupted learning that students have experienced over the course of the last year and a half because we recognize the importance of, um, of this time in providing resources to meet needs that students have. One of the things that this whole pandemic has brought out is students who weren't able to get online nor uh, come into schoolhouses, many of them are described as missing in action. Talk a little bit about those, those children who educators could not find and school systems could not find. Um, unfortunately, we know that the, the pandemic and the closures of schools had, had impacts across the state, but um, in places like Baltimore City that have disproportionately high rates of students experiencing homelessness, um, students who are in the care of the Department of Juvenile Services, and students who are also in foster care, um, Baltimore City Schools has faced a unique challenge in reaching out and keeping in touch with these highly transient um, student populations. We are still concerned, frankly. Um, we'll be looking towards the, uh, the fall full-time enrollment counts for students. We know that school systems across the state lost large numbers of students last year, um, but this year as we are headed into in-person schooling, um, we expect to see large numbers of all of our students return. If we do not see those expected numbers for students experiencing homelessness, there is going to need to be a specific outreach campaign, home visiting programs, getting people into community to figure out where students are, whether they are safe and what they need in order to come back to school and be successful. I really don't think the Solving the issue is as simple as um, finding students and telling them we need to go back to school. I think we also have to recognize that over the course of the last year, folks have lost family members, have lost providers, have gotten sick themselves. Um, and, and the world has shifted for a lot of these students. Um, frankly, a lot of them have seen the, the underside of the way the world operates in a way that we don't like to talk about. In, in nice public conversation. And it might be unrealistic or, or really difficult to expect that they are all going to want to come back into a public school system that may not meet their needs. That is why it is so critical 
that in addition to finding students, um, school leaders are talking to them about what their experiences have been, providing um, any care they may need, be it um, therapeutic or, or trauma-informed services, or if they have found jobs to support themselves and their families that are conflicting with school, ensuring that we're providing them with a schedule that allows them to continue um, ensuring that their family has what they need so that they can focus on school. There are differences between urban districts and rural districts. Can you explain what some of those challenges are that uh, both students and teachers face? Yeah. So there are um, some differences in the challenges being faced by urban and rural districts. For example, in urban districts, we're seeing issues related to just bringing people back into the building safely, ensuring that we don't have overcrowded classes, that we have um, enough PPE in place, that we have the appropriate safeguards and policies and guidelines to follow if and when an outbreak may occur to ensure that folks are safe. Um, we're also, of course, seeing issues with digital connectivity in the event that we have to revert to um, virtual schooling because of um, the accessibility issues that we know to be the case for, for urban areas, whether it's affordable, um, whether the quality of the internet being provided is actually enough to meet the demands of a student or an educator's course load, et cetera. Um, in rural communities, however, we're, we're seeing slightly different issues. One of the things that um, we haven't talked about is the impact of rural poverty and the way that looks different from urban poverty. So we might have students who um, who have the same if difficulties in accessing virtual learning, a lack of broadband access, but it might not be because their family can't afford it. It might simply be because there are no lines out that far into their community to ensure that the connectivity is high enough quality to enable them to stay online um, while overcrowding may not necessarily be an issue in some rural jurisdictions. There's still the, um, the concern about ensuring that students are returning to their schools at all, that they are having the ability to get back to the buildings that community members still see it as a safe place to return to and a valuable place to be. Um, and that is why it is so important, despite the differences and the specific issues being faced in urban and rural communities that the State Board of Education is listening to community members across the state and coming up with guidelines about this return that makes sense and can be applied in all areas of Maryland. I note that during this last legislative session, there was a lot of emphasis on tutors and trying to make sure children with learning disabilities get the types of services that they need. Can you talk about both the tutors and those with learning disabilities, what they they should look forward to in 2021? Definitely. So I'll start with tutoring. Um, one of the things that the Blueprint did actually prior to the, the pandemic in this past legislative session was focus on the importance of tutoring. We call it Transitional Supplemental Instruction, or TSI, for students in the very earliest grades. We want to ensure that all students have a strong start. So um, anyone kindergarten to third grade who was falling behind academically would receive some additional small group or one-on-one -on -one tutoring under the blueprint. Of course, the pandemic happened um, and some changes were made in this last legislative session in the form of the Blueprint 2.0 that did a couple of things. 
One, um, we extended the availability of tutoring services to include students in grades four to 12. So all students are being covered um, for additional tutoring right now. And that is partially because of state funds with the blueprint, but also the specific direction of federal funds that we've received this year. Um, so we're seeing an investment in tutoring. We're seeing a clarification of certain types of um, small group tutoring. So it's not just one educator in a classroom full of students the way it is during the school day, but we're limiting it to one educator and a max of four students for small group instruction. We know that tutoring is effective um, and we've put money behind that. As far as what we've seen for students with IEPs, um, the Strong Schools Maryland is a part of a, a group called the Education Advocacy Coalition, which is led by Disability Rights Maryland and um, special education advocates and practitioners and parents from all over the state. And that has been the constant drum that they've been banging since the day schools closed back in 2020, is that students who require additional services were not going to get their, their needs met under federal IDEA requirements. Um, we do know that the state is offering compensatory educational services to students who have missed it. Over the course of the last year and a half, we know that um, the federal government has issued some guidance so that parents and, and community members have the ability to say, we are entitled to these services. We did not get them at this time. We want them now and actual legal recourse to um, pursue if things don't end up being offered as they should, according to federal law. This is admittedly um, not a complete solution because we know, unfortunately, for, for many parents who have students with IEPs or family members in, in um, taking care of children with IEPs and 504 plans, it may be difficult to get to a school building and go ahead and do that advocacy in person. It might be more difficult if a school is functioning virtually. Um, but all that is to say that there is recourse and there are options and Strong Schools Maryland exists as an organization to help um, community members do that advocacy if it is needed. Well, that is Shamoria Gardner. She is the executive director at Strong Schools Maryland. Shamoria, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Charles. Here are a couple of thoughts on going back to school. There should be joy as young people begin a new school year with its infinite possibilities. Growth and learning should go hand in hand. COVID-19 has brought fear into the educational process, which is never healthy nor productive. I am always amazed by the resiliency of young people and their ability to find and make a way out of no way. Being cautious and prudent are the domains of adults and young people's lives. We guide them with the knowledge that the next generation will be better than the previous. An ancient Chinese proverb used to celebrate First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt on her passing sums up what I know to be true. It is better to light candles rather than curse the darkness. Our children are our candles. Let them burn brightly so they can show us the way. 
Future City is produced and edited by Mark Gunnery. We welcome your feedback, and you can email us with your thoughts and, yes, questions about the show at futurecity, that's one word, at wypr.org. If you want to learn more about some of the people and the organizations we heard from today, or you just want to listen to past broadcasts, please visit wypr.org and search for Future City. Until next time, I'm Charles Robinson for 88.1 WYPR and my producer, Mark Gunnery, and everyone who makes Future City possible. We hope your dreams of tomorrow become a reality. I'm your host, Charles Robinson. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at mccormickcorporation.com.